Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about Talend. That's T-A-L-E-N-D. They're a leader in data integration and data integrity, and they're changing the way the world makes decisions. Talend supports the public sector with data integration, integrity, quality, and governance. So data is easily discoverable, understandable, and easy to use and shared in support of any mission, initiative, or goal. This unified approach is unique and essential to delivering complete, clean, and uncompromised data. Over 6,500 customers across the globe have chosen Talon to run their organizations on healthy data. So check them out at www.talon.com. That's www.talend.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. When you're looking at the law or you're looking at technology, you know, we always talk about in technology, it's people, process, and technology. Um, and usually the most challenging parts are the process and particularly the people. Um, in, in the law, it's it's very similar, right? And and so it's uh, at the end of the day, they're people problems. Um, they may pre- be presented and wrapped up in, in the package that it's a legal problem or it's a technology problem. But at the end of the day, it's a people problem. And being able to help people, um, whether it's using... Um, the law, whether it's using technology um, to find the solutions to their problems and to try to get there that, you know, I felt like that actually translated quite well um, into this role. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. In a world of digital transformation and rapid tech advancements, Texas appears to be pulling ahead, setting examples and leading the way. Nearly all of us have experienced the tedium of waiting to get a license at the DMV or a particular document at a different government agency. But what if there was a future that left the necessary functions of government intact, but removed the stuffy air, long lines, and red tape? Well, for Texas, they've really focused on that, and the future is already here. Recently, the state of Texas embarked on a digital transformation effort that represents a modern, cohesive destination for Texans interacting with government agencies. As a digital government assistant, the Texas by Texas platform creates a more personalized, accessible version of Texas.gov for Texans. Each user has their own login and dashboard with a prioritized to-do list, transaction history, and even wallet functionality to store government documents like a driver's license or pay for things like parking tickets. The ultimate goal is to connect citizens with their government in a seamless, safe, and effective way. In today's episode, the Chief Information Officer for the state of Texas, Mandy Crawford, joins me to have a discussion about this very program and talk about her state's digital transformation journey, including where she draws inspiration for some of the projects she implements in the state and how they handled the massive influx of new residents during the pandemic. Mandy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Absolutely, Brian. Thanks for asking me to join. Of course. It, it was a no-brainer, honestly, because they always say things are always bigger in Texas, and you guys are doing some big things out there. So being able to bring in some of your uh, your background and talk about some of the programs you're doing, I think, is 
not only exciting for me, but exciting for the audience as well. But before we get into some of that, um, one question right off the top, you have such a deep background in the legal sector. In fact, I saw you worked for the attorney general uh, of the state of Texas for a while. What made you switch over to your new role now as CIO for the past few years? Um, well, uh, it is a great question, and I do get asked that um, a fair amount, or, or, or folks tend to be surprised, and I always tease that, you know, I'm a recovering attorney um, <laughs> in this role now. But if I think if you ask my my staff, they would say, you know, old habits die hard. And <laughs> so I tend to um, to fall back in, into some of that, you know, mode in my training there, um, I guess, in, in kind of the way I think and in, in the line of questions I have for the team. Um, so, you know, I've been in state government since 1999, and and as you pointed out, you know, my my career up until coming to um, the Department of Information Resources um, was was at the the Attorney General's office here in Texas, and you know, started off there as a baby lawyer, and and worked my way up through that organization um, in a variety of roles. Um, the, one of the last roles that I had was serving as both the general counsel for the agency as well as the uh, deputy attorney general for administration. And so in that role, you know, that's a statewide office with uh, more than 4,000 employees across the state. And so, you know, it, I would say it's kind of like the COO of, of the of the agency, that deputy AG for administration, um, uh, HR and budget and, and procurement and, you know, a lot of work with IT and, and all sorts of areas, as well as the legal um, functions and general counsel. And I also tease folks that um, if you think your job is, is difficult, try being the lawyer for an agency full of lawyers. Um, and I promise <laughs> you that will take you <laughs> take your ego a down a few notches. A lot of negotiations you, happening. <laughs> a lot of negotiations, a lot of people that aren't shy telling you um, why they think you're wrong. Um, <laughs> um, and then working through that. But, you know, it working at the attorney general's office was uh was tremendous experience and and it was something that i really enjoyed and um and it's it was just a great agency filled with really dedicated folks so again back to your question how did i get over here um to be cio and executive director of uh, of dir um you know part of it was i think the role um before where, where i said it really was that sort of management position and leadership position um of that agency and so um uh, you know that's something that i've always been um passionate about in my career is 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 about management um the importance of leadership and so when there was an opportunity that was presented to me to be able to lead an agency like dir that had such a strong mission um, and an importance here in Texas, in you know, particularly in the role of supporting so many other um, agencies throughout the state and their missions, I really jumped at it um, when when I was um, asked to come over. You know, the transition. Um, there were some. You know, it was it was interesting, um, not without its challenges. Um, but I would say that for me. Um, when you're looking at the law or you're looking at technology, you know, we always talk about in technology, it's people, process, and technology. Um, and usually the most challenging parts are the process and particularly the people. Um, in, in the law, it's it's very similar, right? And and so it's, uh, at the end of the day, they're people problems. Um, they may pre be presented and wrapped up in, in the package that it's a legal problem or it's a technology problem, but at the end of the day, it's a people problem. And being able to help people, um, whether it's using um, the law, whether it's using technology um, to find the solutions to their problems and to try to get there that, you know, I felt like that actually translated quite well 
um, into this role. I love that. And even though it, it seems like a non-traditional leap, I, I've had so many CIOs on this show where we talk about what the evolution of the role has been, especially over the past decade or so. Right. And really you become a translator and you're, exactly. you're not, yeah, you're not digging into the cords and the, and the di different pieces of hardware and software. Really what you're doing is you're helping to solve business challenges. So I can absolutely see how that background would be, would be valuable to, uh, to someone in your, in your role, like you are now, what I, I got to ask you this, what's been the biggest learning curve? Obviously you, you mentioned it's a people. It's a people uh, issue, which we talk about all, all the time on the show as well, where people is one of the biggest areas that drive digital transformation forward, these programs forward. And it's sometimes the thing that gets the least amount of attention. Um, so I'm glad you're focused on that. But what have been some of the other kind of challenges that you faced, at least learning this, this new role that you're in? Sure. Um, well, acronyms. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, government doesn't have acronyms, right? I know, none at all. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like I'm coming, you know, from a career in government and I thought I knew all the acronyms there were to learn. And no, that's that's not true. <laughs> Technology <laughs> has its own set. So um, so that was part of it. Um, uh, always fun to sit there with my phone under the table and, you know, quickly do a Google for, for what somebody's saying. Um, but it also, and going back to your point on translating, I found that to be really helpful because with my team, who would, you know, they would throw acronyms at me and explaining something. And I'd say, nope, slow it down. Explain to me what that means. Tell me what those acronyms mean. And then that helped to reinforce to them that when we're communicating with our customer agencies, particularly with the business side of those agencies and not the IT sides, they have no idea what we're talking about, right? And so you have to translate um, what it is you're saying. Why does it matter to them? What's that business value? So I think that that was a helpful exercise for the team as well, um, jokingly saying, you know, you need to translate that, you know, into Mandy speak. And so, um, you know, that that was helpful. And going back to the the people part of it. And, and one of those challenges is, you know, the position at the attorney general's office, um, you, you come kind of, well, you come from a position of authority. And so, you know, agencies are looking to you um, for a solution, for advice. You say, this is what the law says, and here's, you know, the parameters that you can work in and go, or you come down, you know, with authority on a particular position and, and, and folks do that. It's different in this role um, because, you know, we, we call our agencies customers because they are and, and the agencies we support. So it's much more collaborative and it's about consensus building and it's about relationships and it's about um, convincing folks that this is the way to go as opposed to just shoving a solution down their throat and telling them this is what they're going to do. Something that I, I want to make sure I, I call out that you mentioned and, and people might have missed it in the beginning, I think is so important as a leader, to me, one of the best attributes you can have is vulnerability, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And you didn't come into the role saying, hey, I know everything. Right. I'm, I'm going to give you guys all the answers. I, I love the, the Mandy speak, right? Because it's a little bit self-deprecating in a way. You're saying, hey, explain it to me so I understand it because I don't understand it. And you get so many leaders out there that just need, they want to pretend like they know so they don't, um, so they don't look uh kind of stupid in front of their people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, that's such a good attribute. And I, that's why I don't want to glance over that. I think that's, if you, if you take away something from this episode, I think vulnerability, especially in a leadership role, but in any role is so important because you, it's how you learn. Um, and it's also how you ingratiate with yourself, with your team, especially as a leader, because they'll trust you if you, they know you're not trying to put on some kind of persona. I think that's, that's so important. 
Absolutely. No, I, I, I could not agree more. I mean, I can't, um, none of us can or should try to be anyone other than who we are. And, um, and, and so that is that on authenticity. And, you know, we, we all, we, these are challenging jobs and, and we're not all going to be perfect all the time. And so to your point that you brought up, because I think that, you know, that, that part of that vulnerability equation or, or what we're all going for with that is, you know, it's, it's part of accountability and it's a part of growth and it's a part of learning. And until we take ownership um, for where we are, whether it's for, you know, mistakes or successes and move forward, then we, we won't learn from those experiences for, you know, for better or for worse. And so um, I've, it's something I've always tried um, to um, certainly put out there um, in my own professional and personal career, but then also to encourage leaders to do, because you're right, I think a lot of folks don't do that. And you, we have this, this concept of leadership that it's whether it's command and control or that leaders know everything. And we all know that's just not true. And it's, it, it would be impossible to do that. And, and, you know, for me, I'm, I am only as strong um, as my team and I'm only as strong as the relationship that I have with my team and, and the support of my team. And, um, and I am very fortunate in that throughout my career, I've worked with tremendous teams. And, and I will say that the team I have here at, at DIR is truly one of the finest that I've ever worked with. And I, I feel truly um, just blessed to be able to work with these folks. Well, while we're touching on vulnerability and, and leadership and also kind of exploring unknown territories, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that you you took on this new role as CIO um, and pretty quickly the the pandemic hit in, a, in probably one of the most disruptive periods of time um, that anyone in that role could have faced. And this is a new role for you. What did that feel like when you were when you were kind of taken into this into this period of time against your will, really? Um, and how did you how did you navigate that? That how did you kind of figure out different strategies that you were going to deploy um, for your for your stakeholders, right? For the different agencies and for the citizens of Texas. How did that look? Um, gosh, yeah, what a crazy two years plus wherever we are now. Um, it has been. Um, you know, one thing that I will, you know, continue to say is um, the the team here, and this was something that happened, you know, long before I was here, but um, had the vision and the foresight and in working with state leadership to make sure from that technology perspective, we had the statutes in place, the authority in place, and then the solutions in place um, to be able to respond quickly to this pandemic. Now we didn't know that we would be responding quickly to a pandemic, right? But the idea behind it was we we had those solutions and sort of seeing that future that it meant um, the the ability to transition quickly, you know, scalability, agility, having you know technology on retainer, whether it was through our shared technology services program with the you know the suite of managed services that we have, whether it was through our you know our cloud programs or whether it was through our cooperative contracts that we have here, where we have, you know, more than 700 contracts um, for IT goods and services that are um, are ready to go uh, when folks want to deploy them. So in many ways, and I know there there are folks that, that, have, that I've certainly have not coined this, other folks have talked about it, you know, that the uh, pandemic being the biggest driver of, you know, digital transformation and adoption um, in their, um, in their states. And that's certainly not to, to make light at all about, you know, the, the, the 
tragedy of the pandemic and everything else that happened. But it's true, right? I mean, that so many folks had to move so quickly. So I think from looking at that as a disruptor, it certainly was, but it was something that was comforting and assuring, certainly to me as a leader, and I know to my agency, knowing that we had the solutions that were out there um, and we would be able to deploy those quickly for our customer um, agencies. I think, you know, moving forward with that um, and, and in talking to my peers across the country, I think one of the challenges, we, we all know that, it, we know that the, the technology industry, both in the private and public sector responded uh, in a tremendous way during the pandemic and really, you know, came together to be, to be able to spawn, respond and serve, you know, customers, whether they were, you know, government customers or, or, or you know, private sector customers, whoever, it quickly and to meet their new um, expectations of, of service delivery um, in this new normal. But um, I think now moving forward, it's um, we also have those expectations from those same customers of that we can do things quickly, right? That, that everything is done super fast and, and, and that we're able to move at a pace that frankly was a pace for uh, emergency times and not a pace that's sustainable moving forward. So, um, how do I you think, manage those? How do you manage those expectations now? Yeah, it, it's tough, right? I yeah. mean, it's, it's, <laughs> because they, they know we can do it, right? Yeah. They, they saw us do it. Um, but I think now part of it is just having those frank conversations about it and saying, okay, well, and particularly for those, I would say on the business side and now on the technology side who don't really see what all goes into it and the level of effort, because, which is great because you want it to be that way, right? That they just pull up the app and it works and it looks great and, and everything works the way it's supposed to. And they can pull up a dashboard with all the data that they need and, and everything works seamlessly, but they don't realize the, the tremendous lift that went into that, particularly when you're, you know, building some of these things on top of legacy applications and trying to make data that's never talked to each other, talk to each other. Um, So it was a a huge lift. So it's, it's conversations and that goes back to, you know, relationship and, and the roles that we have and um, in, in trying to um, make sure people understand the reality of the space that we're working in. And that also goes to, you know, state leadership, having those conversations with, the appropriators and the agency heads about what is a realistic expectation um, for what we um, can deliver. Because even though, you know, in Texas we do, um, we really rely on our industry partners a lot um, to be able to deliver. We don't, you know, we're a highly federated model and and, and we outsource a lot of um, the functions that we have to, you know, our trusted partners. But even the private sector, it's tough getting those resources together and 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 continuing at this pace. So it's just conversation. Um, I won't say it's always perfect with folks that they always understand, um, but they at least listen. You mentioned something earlier in that where you talked about having having the the foresight to put the statutes and authorities in place to be able to to pivot right and and I. That's another thing I want to shine a light on because I think we forget sometimes that government is a lot more complex than just throwing technology into right. the equation. I, I was having this conversation, and, and you might know him. Um, he used to be the CIO for the city of Chattanooga, Brent Messer. Mm. And when I was talking to Brent, one of the things he talked about when he pivoted was um, one of the policies they had in place actually didn't allow for e-signature. It was yeah. a, a legacy law and policy in place that they had to quickly overnight right into law to allow e-signature to take place so they could facilitate some of the rollouts that they had. And 
those are, that's just one example. And, and you, you brought that up. I think that's something to remember that, um, that maybe we can look at into the future as, as something we've learned is that we need to make sure that you're not handcuffed when you need to be agile. It's not just about having money. It's not just about having the right technology, but it's having the, the agility to, to make these decisions and, and allow for it to, to, for them to happen. I think that's incredibly important. Uh, what other things did you take from this period of time now that as you're looking into the future and you need to make sure, obviously you're, I'm, I'm going to use one of the biggest buzzwords during the pandemic, but resilient, right. how can, how have you looked at the strategy that you're putting into place moving forward to build resiliency, but also the ability to be agile as well, um, for your stakeholders? Um, well, you know, we're constantly looking at, again, going back to those, that technology and retainer are, you know, managed services uh, that we offer. Um, how do we need to evolve those? What were, were there gaps, um, that we saw in the pandemic where we could have offered, um, up a service and have that on demand, um, for those customers that need to do that. Um, so we're looking at those to see what gaps that were there. I want to, and, you know, part of the priorities of, as well is let's look at, you know, I know, I think virtually every state did this, where, you you know, leveraging the governor's disaster declaration for the pandemic that allowed them to um, maybe suspend some procurement rules or suspend other rules and statutes that were in place that, to, to your point about the e-signature, um, that were an impediment to moving quickly and, and being able to respond and be resilient. So, you know, one of our priorities is certainly looking through what were those exceptions? Where were those disaster declarations leveraged when it comes to procurement or technology? And is there a way, as our you know our legislature only meets for six months every other year, and we're coming up on that in January, are there ideas or proposals for the legislature to maybe make some of those permanent? Um, you know, and maybe some of them don't need to be permanent, but maybe maybe there are. And so that's one of the things that we're looking at um, rolling into session, because to your point, we need to be able to, we all know this isn't going to be the last pandemic or the last time that there's going to be some sort of a disaster that's going to cause mm-hmm. us um, to need to be resilient. Um, and then just on some basic levels, we've been asked offering disaster recovery as a service for a long time um, through through our programs. And so, um, you know, we're we're really pitching that as well to folks uh, to really explore that. And I think that is another thing that really made agencies open their eyes as their, as their folks um, spread out, as they needed to be able to respond quickly. They just need to make sure um, uh, that they're able to be resilient when it comes to that. Um, one other thing, um, you know, around this that we're looking at, and, and, and I'm sure we could probably really dive in deep if we wanted to is on modernization, because I think that was a huge thing during the response uh, during the pandemic is trying to get applications um, and to be able to respond uh, quickly, like we talked about, talk to each other and, and be the sort of agile, scalable applications that we needed um, when you're working on legacy platforms and legacy um, systems. And so I think modernization is another thing that comes out of the pandemic where it, it made people um, throughout state government realize that uh, just not enough investment had been put into technology over the years and that it's time to make that change. And so I, I, I would anticipate that we'll see a lot of um, increases uh, in funding and strategy on that when, it, when our legislature meets in January. I think empirically, when, when I look at 
kind of government technology as a whole over the past few decades, it felt like, and, and tell me if you feel this way, that whether it's lawmakers or whether it's people that have been in your role, they've kind of looked to kind of procure and throw technology at the problem and try to try to make it work, try to make it stick. And it feels like maybe in the past five, seven years, there's been a, a shift in, into a more strategic posture. One, I, I think it was almost necessary if, if some of these governments were going to survive the pandemic to kind of get ahead of things like you were talking about. But the other is more of a focus and intentionality around the, the human-centered design aspect of what they're doing. So right. you, you talked about the making data talk to each other, right? Or systems talk to each other that haven't, haven't had to do that. What, what were you guys looking at to understand? I'm guessing taking a look at the citizens that you're serving, right? And understanding what does, what does their situation call for, right? What are some of the signals and triggers we need to be looking for and what data has to facilitate that? Is, is that human centered design aspect or that strategy really something that you guys have been focused on in what you're doing? It is. It is something that we're, and, and not only I would say from that constituent uh, consumption, constituent sure. experience, but also from employee um, experience. Oh, yeah. And the folks, right? I mean, utilizing um, those technologies. So we, we are doing that. Um, uh, you know, some of the things I would say, you know, again, going back to, um, to the pandemic and looking at the data, um, you know, dealing with, uh, with our Department of State Health Services and our you know, Health and Human Services Commission, where we're like in other states, um, had to evolve from uh, reporting on infectious diseases maybe once every six months from data that they had on a spreadsheet um, to being having to report in real time, you know, 24-7, 365 with accurate data that they were pulling from multiple sources and being able to report that then to decision makers who could look at that data and count on that data to be able to make decisions about, you know, closures and, 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 and other things like that. So that was not only something that would obviously serve constituents, but certainly from that internal perspective, from the, the users of the data in government that it needed to um, have dashboards that were easily readable and understandable and, and be able to overlay, uh, overlay on other fields of data um, uh, that were things that were really aspirational before um, that we were able to make happen. But one of the things that we've done moving, uh, and this was pre-pandemic, it was in the works, but I think now this goes back to adoption, going back to the business side of things where they've seen the value of it. And mm -hmm. so we're seeing an increase in adoption is our Texas by Texas, our, our TXT mobile um, digital assistant, um, which really is was completely designed with the consti constituent experience in mind. You know, it's a single sign on. Um, it's it's secure and it pulls multiple government accounts into one app where you know, I can go in there and see all the vehicles that I have to register that that are that are due for registration. I can see when my driver's license needs to um, be renewed. I can uh, change my um, uh, address. I move, and I can change my address on my driver's license right through an app on my phone in just a matter of seconds. Um, all of that designed to be, um, you know, for the constituent to make it as easy as possible. It directs me to go to the vehicle inspection station through the app based on where I'm located um, to the ne nearest inspection station. So it's definitely a focus. We've included it in our state strategic plan um, for technology um, that that um, customer and, and constituent experience uh, should be a priority. Careful, you're going to get an influx of people now wanting to move 
to Texas <laughs> if it's that easy to move to Texas. I know. Well, actually, well, actually, I say that I, I was kidding, but during the pandemic, there was absolutely an influx of people. It was a big story from people going from Silicon Valley to Austin, Texas, and I would imagine that right. some of, some of the efforts that you guys did made it a lot easier for them to to facilitate that change. I'd like to think so. I, I would like to think so. You know, the 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 other thing we do here is we run Texas.gov, which is you know the state's official um, internet portal, and we have things on you know moving to Texas. What do you need to do here? All of those connecting folks to their to those services. So it's it's been something that's been a priority for us for a while, but just again evolving into what does that next gen experience look like, where it's not just on a website, but it's through an app. Um, but you're right. And I, I mean, we definitely had an influx of folks from all over, certainly um, a lot of folks from California. And, um, you know, it's great for um, our economy and it's great for business here in Texas. It's a little bit hard on the housing market. Um, <laughs> the, but uh, but yeah, it's definitely, and, and, you know, that's part of hybrid work, right? You can work anywhere. Um uh, now, at least, um, definitely in the private sector. I know that uh, Oklahoma public sector is uh, is actively recruiting other states to uh, to come uh, live in Oklahoma but work uh, in your own state. So uh, there, there's a lot of folks that are doing that. See, so you brought up modernization. Let me ask you what what's been um, one of the bigger challenges that you've seen, or, or multiple challenges that you've seen within the, the government technology industry today. I mean, the, obviously. We've we've touched on uh, some some of the pe- things around people or adoption. Um, I think adoption. I'm glad you brought that up, by the way, because it it's, is certainly a, a large challenge internally and externally. But when you take a look at what's happening today, and also maybe moving into the future as well, what are some of those challenges you're seeing facing the industry today? Um, well, of course, security um, is always going to be one of our biggest challenges because it just evolves so quickly, and 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 it's so important. And those um, those, those threats are everywhere. And, you know, the more, I mean, we all know, you know, technology powers the business of government and, and it really at this point, I mean, it would be very, very difficult for government to run and function without, um, with technology supporting it and and its ability to deliver. Um, but that also means, you know, greater exposure and and greater risk, not that there weren't security risks that were non-technologically related before and anything, there's always, fraud risks and, and things like that, even when we have paper systems. But um, it, security is a challenge. Um, I think, you know, procurement uh, is always a bit of a, a challenge because it is different across the country. Um, you know, you if you've seen one state, you've seen one state, as yeah. they like to say in Nassio. And so it's, yeah. it's um, you know, trying to understand the different procurement laws in the states can, can be a bit of a challenge. And, and, and it's balancing an understandable need for transparency and accountability um, in dealing with public funds with the need for speed and agility. And so I think that technology solutions are out there for whatever it is we need. It's just a matter of, of getting the funding and being able to move quickly enough to implement these. And I think those are, they're still, that is tough. And I think that is one of those things coming out of the pandemic where we saw that we actually were able to move quickly in some of those spaces um, that now that things are dialed back to sort of the old pace of government, gosh, it's challenging, right? When you know what we were able to do before. Um, So I think that's really something that we've, we've got to look on and see, uh, there's got to be 
there's got to be a way to do both or all of those things, right? Meet the, meet the needs of transparency and accountability, but still being able to be agile and move quickly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I talk about some of the, some of the issues surrounding say citizen services or digital experience, um, that's one of the things I talk about is, is obviously digital identity is a big factor in that and providing contextualized access, right? You can't just lock it down so it doesn't become functional. You have to allow it to be functional and still have the same security measures to, to do that. So I think that's so important. I'm, I'm glad, glad you brought that up. And I'm also glad you brought up security because I want to give you a little bit of kudos here, but also get into your head a little bit about kind of where you see this, this program going. Um, I'm sure a lot of my listeners are very familiar with, with state ramp. Um, some, maybe all are familiar with the fact that text ramp was one of the, one of the catalysts for this, this broader program to be created. Um, you guys were really, um, kind of the leading, uh, at the leading edge of creating, um, a program bespoke for your state to provide, um, some reassurances to agencies within the state, especially as they migrate to the cloud. Um, very similar to obviously the FedRAMP program at the federal level. Um, what are some of the things that went into TextRAMP, if you're familiar, and kind of wh- how do you see that program evolving, kind of intersecting with, with the state ramp program? Sure. So, um, you know, the idea with TextRAMP, which, you know, was a, a part of a, a legislative package, um, there was our Senate Bill 475 that was passed last session, uh, which was a comprehensive data and security bill. And one of the things that was included in that was TextRAMP. I mean, our, our state legislature and our governor want to um, make sure that those cloud products and services um, that Texas agencies are using are secure because they hold Texans' data. And, um, you know, that would, going back to the earlier question about challenge, you know, as yeah. you mentioned, it's identity and privacy is definitely a big, is a consideration as well. So with, you know, TextRamp, the idea behind it was to provide more assurances, particularly in the space where you um, you have companies who maybe don't participate in federal procurement, so they wouldn't have a need to do a FedRAMP. Um, or they really only, it's a small Texas company that wants to do business in Texas, and they wouldn't utilize a state ramp program. So it's just a, a Texas program. So the way TextRamp works, it's there's there's no fee to apply. Um, and we will accept, you know, FedRAMP certification, state ramp certification. We accept Arizona, the AZ ramp. Um, I feel like there's a couple others maybe that we do as well. Um, but then there's text ramp for the other folks, um, that need that. And we do it based on tiers, uh, particularly around the, the, the sensitivity of the data. So highly mm-hmm. regulated data needs more security, um, and more assurances, um, say than, than something that doesn't have. Um, that regulated data in. So we have, oh, I'll probably get this wrong, but as of um, the date of this recording, close to a thousand, I think, um, products that we have certified under TexRAMP. Um, and, and state agencies and institutions of higher ed here in Texas are, um, they, they need that TexRAMP certification um, uh, it, before they can uh, enter into a contract with one of these cloud service providers. So when you say you accept uh, like FedRAMP and AZRAMP and others, it, have you built reciprocity into the program? We have. We have. That's huge. So, I, 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 to me, that, that's something that needs to be done, not just within the U.S. Uh, around different different state accreditations like this, but I think as we look globally, there's things that 
that fed ramp kind of can supersede from a controls package perspective. And mm -hmm. I, um, I know reciprocity is something that, that companies are lobbying for working towards, but it's excellent that you guys have done that as well for these other programs that companies are frankly investing in to, right. to do that. I mean, it's, it is a, it is a big investment for the mm -hmm. companies to be able to do that. And frankly, from our standpoint and from where we are, it is a considerable um, personnel investment and time investment um, to be able to do these certifications. So, you know, the idea is, again, these are the, the same controls and security standards that we require of our state agencies and institutions of higher education um, in our in our rules, our security rules. And we're just requiring it of those cloud service providers that they're using. So the same requirements, it's just for the, the private sector who wants to do business with Texas as well. And I'll also say, you know, it's an evolving program. So, um, you know, there'll be we're, we're working through that right now. It's been about a year or gosh, just shy of a year, eight months since it went live. Um, and so we're learning more things every day as we're looking at um, what are the best ways to roll this out? How can we make it efficient both for us and for um, the companies that are seeking certification and then for the agencies that are utilizing these programs? So it, it, I, I imagine it's going to continue to evolve. Um, but it's something that you know our state leadership felt very strongly about and that we were happy to implement. You, you mentioned um, other states, and this is this is outside of just the text ramp program, but you, you've mentioned looking at other states and kind of building those things in. How much do you look at other states? This is kind of a two-part question. Um, how much do you look at other states for inspiration for some of the things that that you like to fold into to what you're doing, but also how competitive are you with, <laughs> with other states? I love asking this question because I, I, I think it's just natural, especially for, for people in, in, in your roles to understand like, hey, you know what, I can learn some from other people, but I also want to be one of the best, right? So so what does that look like for you? Um, well, I, you know, one of the things that I feel um, was an unexpected um, perk and, and, and real joy from this job is um, the network of public sector um, IT professionals that, that throughout the country that um, I've been able to work with and become friends with and collaborate with and learn from. So, you know, whether it's through um, NASIO, you know, National Association of State CIOs or other organizations, it, it's a great community um, because, you know, while we all have different states, different structures, some of us are centralized, some of us are fe highly federated, semi-federated, um, different budgets, um, uh, uh, Dennis Goulet, the CIO in, in, in New Hampshire, teases me about his budget and says it's just a rounding error for you in Texas. But um, <laughs> um, but whether you, you have different budgets, different statutes, uh, we're all facing you know the same challenges. We really are just um, and so to be able to learn from one another um, with both the successes and then the and those you know challenges as well has been uh, is really great. So. We do collaborate. I, you know, just got back from a, a trip out to um, North Carolina to visit with Secretary Jim Weaver out there. And, and oh, I love Jim. Yeah, it's great. Um, and and they're doing a lot of great things. Um, and and really was interested in in their approach to um, security and and response as a state, particularly the way they uh, work with their guard. Um, there in North Carolina, a lot of great stuff going on there. Jim and team are actually coming out here. Uh, gosh, I think in November, I want to say, uh, to learn more about our model, uh, which is really that, you know, CIO is a bro broker managed service model that we're doing here in Texas. I know that that's something they're interested in. 
Um, and, and yeah, there's, there's fun competition too. It, it just depends, you know, I'll look at Florida who has, you know, they've had to, uh, stop and restart and uh, their organization, their IT organization in that state over and over. And now they're kind of just like a, a startup that's got nothing to lose and lots of innovation and cool ideas. And so I enjoy um, you know, hearing from them. There, there's so many others, um, obviously Arizona and J.R. Sloan out there doing, doing really neat things. Utah, they, they all have that, the digital driver's license, which is, um, which is a fun thing to, to think about, especially when you look at all the, the potential that we could have. Um, again, going around identity and what you allow access to, I think that, that that's a key to it. So there's, there's a lot of fun things going on in, in the, across the country. I, lo- I love the collaboration, especially at that level and down to get those t- get the teams together too to to kind of learn at, at different levels of the organization. I think is is a great way to innovate, and it's it's good to know that we have, especially through programs like Nasio, that we have programs like Nasio to kind of bring um, yourself and others together to to collaborate is is awesome. Um, before I give you a chance to give any final thoughts, I have one last question, um, and I love to ask this question to women leaders that that come onto the show, but. Um, any advice that you want to leave for women in the technology space right now? Anything that you've learned across your career that has really helped enable you um, to grow into the role that you're in um, that, uh, that you feel like, especially um, women just starting their career out and they're kind of looking upwards to, to get some inspiration? Um, anything you want to leave them with? Um, well, I think part of it goes back to... Um our earlier talk about, um, you know, being yourself and, and, and it's okay to be vulnerable. Um, and, and it's okay, but you have to be true to yourself and true to who you are. Um, it's you're, you're a woman and that's okay. (laughs) You don't have to pretend to be something else in technology and in, in a male dominated field. I, I also think, um, it's important to pay it forward and to model, um, that it's okay to, um, you know, should you choose to have a family to take time out for your family, um, to model that, uh, you know, that, that you're going to make whatever is a priority in your life that's outside of work, um, a priority and that's okay. And that's the same thing I would say to men as well, is that I think it's on us, particularly as we're coming out of this pandemic, when we've all been working just around the clock and it's, it's been tough and we're dealing with our own things at home. Burnout is very real. Um, and so I think modeling um, um, healthy work-life balance is an important thing. And and then as far as paying it forward, you know, I um, I took time off um, when my children were. I had triplets, and um, oh wow, yeah, and they were um, um, born kind of just as I was starting my career. Maybe I'd been at the attorney general's office, I think, about five years or so. Um, and I took time off from work, um, a year and a half, and um, that agency and, and, and the team over there was tremendous to me in that, uh, they welcomed me back at my own pace. I came back part-time for a little while. Um, I left, uh, again, uh, to stay home for a little bit more and then, and, and, and came back again, then in a full-time capacity. So the idea that just because people take time off for whatever reason, because there are things more important than work, um, let, let's welcome those people back. I think Gartner's coined it as a returnship, um, which I love. Um, the, the idea that there are a lot of folks who are, are mid-career or have taken breaks in their career for whatever reason, um, let's welcome them back and let's bring that in. So probably a rambling answer there um, a little bit, but I, you know, more than anything, um, 
you know, is, is to uh, be authentic to who you are and, and don't apologize for um, the priorities that you have to make in your life. First of all, great advice. But second of all, I can't get over triplets. <laughs> I, I thought having three kids was tough, but three kids at once. I mean, that's a, that's a beyond PhD in yeah. parenting. That's you're impressive. Not a, yeah. No more, uh, you're in zone defense right away, right? Running you're the state of Texas go. must be easy for you at this point. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> oh, I can, you, you don't scare me. I've got triplets. And exactly. You know, that, that should be a shirt you wear to NASA. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and they're in college now too. So that's even, you know, Oh yeah. That's a whole nother package. That is, that is. So Mandy, I, I so appreciate the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave uh, with the listeners? I know we, we covered a lot and, and I appreciate um, some, of the, some of the insights you brought to us, but anything you want to, anything you want to leave for the audience as a final thought? Um, no, well, one, I appreciate the questions very much. And, and, you know, I think, you know, kind of going back to, to some of the themes that came through was about collaboration, you know, and it's collaboration with, with public sector partners and with private sector partners as well. So, um, we we're all in this together, and I think that the technology community really does a great job um, of of working together. Um, and, and for the most part, I will say it, it really feels more like collaboration and partnerships from most of the folks in the private sector that we work with. Um, and 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 I think that when public sector has a strong mission, um, and, and of course the mission of serving you know for us the the people of Texas. Um, there are a lot of folks who want to partner with us to do that. And I am just grateful for those um, partnerships across both the private sector and, and the public sector. I appreciate everybody um, helping us in our mission. Well, the feeling's mutual. Thank you for, for what you're doing, um, not only the state of Texas, but obviously inspiring, I think, other state leaders um, across government to, uh, to make changes that are directly impacting folks like myself. So um, thank you for, for being, being willing to, to provide that public service back. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or govexec.com, or you can listen wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittistrabe. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.